Welcome back to episode number 152 of the Dust Safety Science Podcast. This is the podcast for building a global community around process safety and industries handling combustible dust. I'm your show host, Dr. Chris Cloney. In today's episode, we're talking about dust explosion loss history in North America. This will be a solo episode as part of a series to kick off our fourth year of recording the podcast, where we look at global loss history around the world. In the last episode, we covered some of the earliest resources and regulations from North America in an effort to really point out a couple of key points about combustible dust. One, we've known about these hazards for a long time within North America and around the rest of the world. And two, then the, the purpose of this episode and the later episodes are to discuss that it's not just a North America problem. We're going to discover what kind of, discuss what kind of lost history has occurred in North America, but also elsewhere in the world as well, across Europe, across Asia, um, across the United Kingdom and elsewhere. So to address this challenge of We've known about these hazards for a long time. In last week's episode, episode 151, we talked about the first textbooks that we could find in North America that were published in combustible dust. And in particular, we had a textbook from the late 1910s or early 1920s that was called Theory and Nature of Phenomena, Causes, and Methods of Prevention of Dust Explosions, published by authors David J. Price and Harold Brown. Uh, David J. Price was the engineer in charge at of dust explosion investigations for the Bureau of Chemistry. It's part of the U.S. Department of Agriculture. And Harold Brown, Dr. Harold Brown, was also a employed at the Bureau of Chemistry at the U.S. Department of Agriculture. So we talked about these early references and resources for combustible dust. We talked about some of the early regulations and engineering guidelines, particularly for sugar and cocoa that have been available since 1924. And we talked through some of the history of combustible dust in North America, and in particular in the United States where we had some early coal dust explosions and mining operations leading to the U.S. Bureau of Mines becoming interested in this topic, then focusing on general industry and grain facilities with some large grain handling explosions that we'll talk about later in this podcast episode that brought the U.S. Department of Agriculture in, the Bureau of Chemistry, the National Board of Fire Underwriters. The insurers eventually got into the fold publishing this sugar and cocoa regulation in 1924. The sugar and cocoa regulation was picked up by the National Fire Protection Association and really pushed there and then eventually leading into their first set of standards and engineering guidelines for combustible dust, which has now led to what we have for the NFPA standards related to combustible dust today. So this is sort of a follow-on of this discussion, talking about the history of dust explosions, now moving into loss history, what kind of instances have occurred, how many are happening. And in this episode, we're talking about North America in particular. Next week's episode, we'll talk about Europe and the UK. And then the episode after that, we'll talk about lost history in Asia. So why is understanding lost history important? One thing is we want to really not forget what we already know. And this is a big challenge. It can be challenging to relive. I think the, the quote is, if you don't learn from the past, you're condemned to relive it. But I'm not exactly sure how to say his last name. But I think it's George Santanena or something like that. But if you're, if you're not learning from the past and you're condemned to repeat it, well, knowing that we had a sugar and cocoa regulation in 1924, or standard at least in 1924 for combustible dust explosions, and that said a lot of the same things that we have in our standards and regulations today, really illustrates this, that we're forgetting the things that we already know. That's one of the reasons why understanding and keeping track of lost history is really important. And the second kind of piece of this is just letting you, the audience, know these resources are available. It can be challenging to put these together because you find many of them in so many different places. Some are behind paywalls. A lot of this work was done outside of North America and in different languages. A lot of it was done as conferences and presented, you know, at documents that didn't become available publicly. 
So this information is really scattered through dozens and dozens, even hundreds of resources for combustible dust. And it's really hard to see the whole picture put together. And that's one of the things we're trying to do with the instant database as we move forward is to collect all this lost history globally and say, what is it telling us when we look at the whole thing all together? So those are really the two reasons why understanding lost history are important. One is that we don't forget what we already know. And two, to let the audience yourself know these sort of resources are here. So what lost history information is actually available in North America? So there's six main sources for this today, or at least six main sources that I could find in researching this podcast episode. The National Fire Protection Association released a report of important dust explosions, a record of dust explosions in the United States and Canada since 1860. They published this document in 1957. The U.S. Chemical Safety Board has published its investigation report, the Combustible Dust Hazard Study, which covered explosions in general industry from 1980 to 2006. This was published in 2006. Then the CSB released an update from 2016 to 2000, sorry, 2006 to 2017 and 2008. So there's sort of the first three main sources of information that we can find. And this is nice because these reports are consolidated. They cover a long time period. So you get that information in one place. Another resource is the U.S. Bureau of Mines and the other government groups that have kind of come out of that. They sort of manage their own database in terms of mining accidents. So a lot of the coal dust explosions aren't captured by the NFPA report or the CSB reports. They're covered elsewhere. And this information is actually harder to find. I wasn't able to find a one source that has a list of all the instances that were there. And I'm not sure if it exists. Um, if you do know of that resource, please send it my way at chris.dustsafetyscience.com. I'd love to include it in the information loss history that, history that we're gathering. So that's four resources. The fifth resource is the grain handling industry. There's been a lot of work done tracking grain elevator explosions, grain terminal explosions, um, and some of the grain processing operation incidents as well. This is largely supported by some of the largest associations and government groups that are involved in handling um, grain. So we have the USDA, U.S. Department of Agriculture. We have um, the NGFA, National Grain and Feed Association, and several other groups that are uh, involved with the grain industry have really pushed and helped move forward tracking in this area. So there's three main reports for the grain handling industry, or three main resources for the grain handling industry. The first is the USDA Task Force Report. I think it was released in maybe 77, but it covers the period from 1958 to 1976. And it's called Grain Dust Explosions, an Unsolved Problem. And I would venture to say it's still maybe an unsolved problem today that we're working on. The second resource is Kansas State University. And these were a series of reports released annually by Professor Robert Scoff from 1977 to 2005. Now, Purdue University with Dr. Kingsley Ambrose has been doing that report since 2006 to the current date. So we sort of have this list of information from 1958 all the way up to the current tracking for grain handling industry incidents. And then the last resource, the sixth resource, is our combustible dust incident database. So you can already see that these incidents are covered in multiple places. We have general industry, we have agriculture, we have mining operations just in North America with their own set of databases, their own set of information they're tracking, own set of way that we're doing it. This is one of the reasons that we brought this all together to the instant database at Dust Safety Science is to give that a central place where we can start to understand and track things in a common way and across all industries and across the entire world, actually. So we've set our sights just beyond North America as well. So those are the, five, the six main sources. The NFPA report in 1958, two chemical safety board reports, one in 2006 and an update in 2018. U.S. Bureau of Mines, which we can't find a good resource on. 
The grain handling industry has a host of information from 58 all the way up to the current date. And then our instant database, which we started tracking in 2016. Those were really the six main resources or sources of lost history that I could find in North America. So what are some of the challenges that come up in trying to track this information? One is that the information is not available through, or the information is available through dozens of different documents and databases. We already sort of highlighted this. NFPA and Chemical Safety Board have attempted to consolidate some of the information, but everything else, and especially in other parts of the world, they're in a bunch of different databases. Maybe fire departments keep tracking of some information. Maybe insurance adjusters keep tracking of other information. Some's in public, in, published in the public literature. Some's published in the paid literature. Uh, and just kind of putting this all together can be a big challenge. The second challenge is that there's overlap and gaps in reporting. So the Chemical Safety Board may report incident as being part of general industry. This may also be reported as a grain handling industry incident. So in some cases, we sort of double count. And in other cases, there are gaps where an industry may not be covered at all. Think of you know, waste treatment uh, or other industries that may not be captured in these areas. Uh, third challenge is that there's inconsistent approach to reporting across the board. So what is reportable? Um, in some cases, they only report incidents that involve injuries and fatalities. In other cases, they involve you know, a much lower bar to reporting. We basically take everything we can find at the combustible incident database and try to at least create a tracking entry for that. We'd love to come back in later and put in you know, some sort of grading on how well it's been validated and verified because most of the information is not validated and verified very well. It may just be a news report that's covered, but at least we have our data set at the end of the day that has good coverage of everything that's actually happening. So that's sort of our approach to what is reportable. Reporting format, what you save, the validity of the data, how you show that information, what you try to track, all these are things that are inconsistent across all different databases. The other kind of challenge is that the information, and this is the fourth one, in the consolidated reports and that just aren't available until years after the incidents occur. It might be 10 years or 20 years later, you have this nice consolidated report and people just don't care. At the end of the day, there's a thing called recency bias where the thing that happened last week is much more important to you than the thing that happened last year, which is much more important to you than the thing that happened 10 years ago. So if you hear about an explosion in your industry that was 10 years old, it almost re- highlights in your brain that that's an old thing and it doesn't happen very often. So having these reports not come out routinely and in the moment is a big challenge actually using this information to improve safety in industry. That's another leading reason why we have the instant database. The combustible instant database is really our solution to some of these challenges. We're tracking live time, tracking all incidents, tracking global incidents. Then we can lean on these other databases to verify and validate the information that comes in. I'd love to have some sort of ranking scheme in the Instant database, so somebody could pull, say, the only the ones that are you know a five out of five on verify and validate score of some sort, and have the, all the information that are available. You know, had a really detailed report done, investigation report, or something like that, and you could kind of take that subset of the data and do a, a really detailed analysis on it, being sure that is uh, being confident in the information that's there. Then the other information, all the less confident incidents that occur. We can still provide those and gather them up on mass. You get a really good idea of what's happening globally around the world with combustible dust with these other instances as well. So the next challenge for the instant database is alignment. The next challenge for all the databases is alignment, getting everyone on the same page, identifying where the gaps are, and then expanding this to this global reporting network. This is something that we're looking at doing with Dust Safety Science in a working group, probably within the upcoming next 12 months or so, to create a global reporting network for combustible dust where we address some of these approaches and come up with a consistent way to do it. 
So let's talk through the lost history in North America. That's really the topic of this episode. The first question is, how many dust explosions were occurring in the first half of the century? So we covered some of these large explosions in the previous episode, in episode 151. In particular, we had the a coal mine explosion in, in, on December 6, 1907 in West Virginia. And according to miningtechnology.com, an article that we have there, this explosion resulted from uh, fire damp and coal dust. and led to the death of 362 employees, of which 171 of those were Italian migrants. So this was a very large-scale explosion that took a large loss of life. And this is one of the, the key incidents that led the U.S. Bureau of Mines to starting to look into dust explosions. Around the same time, there was a very large, well, uh, about a decade later, five years later, in 1913, there's a very large explosion at a feed grinding plant in Buffalo, New York, that unfortunately killed 33 employees and injured 80 others. And this really was the genesis or the reason, one of the reasons why the grain industry started looking so deeply into combustible incidents. This explosion in Buffalo really led to the cooperation of the Bureau of Mines, the U.S. Department of Agriculture, the Department of Chemistry, and those other groups that we mentioned earlier, started looking at this challenge. Once the insurers got involved with the uh, regulations that we mentioned by the National Board of Fire Underwriters, that sort of brought everyone together and the National Fire Protection Association to start looking across the board what are the challenge with combustible dust and really the genesis of the approaches that we have today leading from some of these large-scale incidents. From the NFPA report on important dust explosions, a record of dust explosions in the United States and Canada since 1860, they covered a, a quite a long time period. Um, and I'll read the introduction from that report. So the introduction says, since 1900, reports of 1,085 dust explosions in the United States have been received by the Fire Record Department of the National Fire Protection Association. In these explosions, 640 were killed, 1,712 were injured, and property damage totaling $97,811,678 was suffered. Many additional explosions have undoubtedly occurred during this period, which were not reported because of the absence of casualties and the smallness of the loss. So this gives you an idea of the incidents that have occurred from 1900 through to 1957 that are covered in this report by NFPA. Uh, in total, the average then that is reported in this period is 20 explosions per year, 31 injuries per year, and 12 fatalities per year. And this included incidents and loss involving bark dust, coal dust, coffee and spices, cork, cotton, feed, fertilizer, flour, grain, malt, metal dust, paper, phonographic record dust, pitch and resin, plastic, rubber, seed and seed production, starch and corn production, sugar dust, sulfur dust, and wood dust. These incidents do not appear to include the coal mine explosions like the one I just talked about in West Virginia. They seem not to be included in this NFPA report. So this can be sort of thought of as the general industry, and I think including the grain handling industry in this era, in this region of time of the first half of the 20th century. So from sort of 1900 to 1950, in general industries, not including mining, we had about 20 explosions a year, resulting in 31, fatality, 31 injuries and 12 fatalities. So moving on in our lost history then, how many dust explosions occur in U.S. agricultural industries? So we have reporting from about 1950, 1958 actually, up until today, uh, of combustible dust incidents in grain elevators, grain terminals, and other U.S. agricultural industries. And again, these are three resources. The USDA Task Force Report, entitled Grain Dust Explosions, an Unsolved Problem, published in the late 1970s. 
The reporting done at Kansas State University by Professor Robert Scoff uh, from 1977 to 2005. And then the reporting that's been released by Dr. Kingsley Ambrose from 2006 to the current date. So if we sort of break these down to a couple different periods, we can get an idea of the agricultural industry explosions. From this, the USDA task force report from 58 to 76, there were an average of eight grain elevator explosions per year, 15 injuries, and six fatalities. In the late 1970s, and in particular 1977 and 78, there were a tremendous uptick in very serious grain elevator explosions in the United States. In a one-month period from December 1977 to January 1978, and these are listed in the USDA Task Force report, there were five explosions over Christmas, basically over December to January, which took the lives of 62 people and injured 53. So these explosions occurred at Continental Grain in West Wego, Texas, or West Wego, Louisiana, Farmers Export Company in Galveston, Texas, Desert Gold Feed in Liberty, Missouri, Sunshine Mills in Tupelo, Mississippi, Beheimer and Kissner, Kissner in Wayne City, Illinois, and Capital Elevator Number 4, Duluth, Minnesota. So again, these five incidents over a period of one month over the Christmas holidays in 1977 resulted in the lives being taken of 62 people and 53 people being injured. So that's really massive uptake. And there were, there were other incidents in those years as well that were quite a bit higher than we'd seen um, historically. So if you look at the period between 1975 and 1988, we were seeing an average of 20 explosions per year, 35 injuries, and 11 fatalities per year in these agricultural industries. So we had this really big uptick in the late 70s and early 80s. Uh, this led to what is now the OSHA grain handling standard being developed, I believe being released in 88. Now, if we look at the period from 89 to 2018, so this is the Kansas City and Purdue University reporting, we're seeing 10 dust explosions a year, 11 injuries per year, and about one to two fatalities per year. So quite a large reduction from the, the very worst year, for sure, 77, 78. Um, in terms of the number of explosions, number of injuries, and number of fatalities. So this seems, the OSHA grain handling standards seem to have removed some of the issues that were experienced in this period of the late 70s. However, you sort of look back at the historical incidents, from 58 to 76, we were seeing eight explosions per year. Now we have an average of 10 a year. In that earlier period, we were seeing seven, or 15 injuries. Now we have 11 injuries. In that earlier period, we were seeing six fatalities a year, and now we have one to two fatalities. So the most severe incidents that are resulting in fatalities has dropped quite a bit by a factor of about three. But the number of explosions in grain handling facilities and the number of injuries is really about the same as we've seen historically speaking with grain handling injuries. If you exclude those really bad years where we had double or triple the number of incidents with some extremely large loss incidents in 77 and 78. The other kind of point here, I do want to give credit to the grain handling industry and the grain handling standard for reducing the seriousness of grain dust explosions and reducing the numbers overall, but it's been pretty stagnant since 1988. If you look at the last 30 years, you see very similar number of grain industry explosions a year, very similar number of injuries, and very similar number of fatalities. We'll have sort of two years without a fatality, and then you have a large one that's multiple, and then a few years without, and then a large one with multiple. So you've seen this trend over the last 30 years, I would say two things. One, it's been great to have that big reduction, that sort of step change in safety in the 1980s from the grain handling standard. But the question is, what have we done since then? 
And have we really been able to make much progress over the last 30-year period by any new change that we've done in grain handling and dust explosions? So let's talk about U.S. general industries from the period of the 1980s through to today. These are, again, are the U.S. Chemical Safety Board reports. The first one covers 1980 to 2006. The second one covers 2006 to 2017. So the earlier report gives 11 explosions per year, 27 injuries, and 4.5 fatalities. The later report gives nine explosions per year, 25 injuries, and five fatalities. So I call this pretty consistent. Since around the 1980s, the number of explosions in general industries, excluding agriculture and excluding mining, have really been pretty you know, flat. Uh, there's really been the same number of instances that we've seen every year. So I'll sort of do a summary before we move on. So in general industry from the NFPA information, from 1900 to 1950, we were seeing 20 explosions, 31 injuries, and 12 fatalities per year. This included the grain industry. And then in the period between 1950s and 1970s, there was quite a bit of ramp up of dust explosions in the grain handling industries. And then from the 1980s through to today, we're seeing something closer to 10 explosions per year in general industries, 25 injuries and five fatalities. And in agricultural industries, we're seeing 10 explosions per year, 11 injuries and one to two fatalities. So you sort of combine those two together to get all of the explosions that we'd see across all general industries, running up around 12 explosions per year, 36 injuries, and six to seven fatalities in this period from the 1980s, 2006, which really sort of puts us, you know, pretty close to the number of explosions and the number of injuries that were happening from 1900 to 1950 with a reduction in the number of fatalities overall. And this reduction in the number of fatalities is largely driven by less um, large loss incidents in U.S. agricultural industries. So a couple other notes before we kind of close out this episode. I want to talk about how many incidents are we recording at the Combustible Dust Incident Database, and also how many incidents do we see in Canada? Because we talked a lot about the United States, but let's talk about uh, the other parts of North America as well. So in terms of the Incident Database, we just released our, the time this episode comes out, we would have just released our 2021 mid-year incident report, and we've been tracking since 2016. So over this period, we've seen 31 explosions per year, 28 injuries per year, and two to three fatalities, with 2017 being the worst year with six fatalities in total. So we're tracking a slightly higher number of explosions than the other sources. This is likely because we try to track as much as we can find, even if it's not an explosion causing large dollar loss or fatalities or injuries. We still like to have that captured in the database. So we can have that information that's available across those industries as well. But we are seeing similar ranges in injuries and actually reduced number of explosions or fatalities. That's likely because we haven't had a, a large, very many large multiple loss incidents since we've been recording in 2016 and 2017. Unfortunately, we know it's sort of just a matter of time till those pick up. That will bring our, our fatalities up higher. But it does give us faith that we are tracking pretty closely with the historical figures for combustible incidents. In addition to that, we're also tracking another 128 fires in industries handling combustible dust in North in the U.S. and 10 injuries from these fires a year as well. So 120 fires a year and 10 injuries from fires a year in the United States. How does this compare to the loss history in Canada then? So there's no complete database that I can find that's available for dust explosions in Canada. I'm sure some provinces, some have some provincial information, but we just haven't been able to collect that. Um, in the incident database, we've been tracking since 2016. We're seeing an average of four explosions a year and four injuries a year in Canada. 
This sort of makes sense with the U.S. information as well. Canada has about one-tenth the GDP of the U.S. So you would expect sort of one-tenth the industrial activity, one-tenth the number of explosions, one-tenth the number of injuries. We have not actually recorded a fatality in Canada since we've been tracking, but there was some fatal dust explosions the year before we started tracking in Sarnia in Ontario and elsewhere in Canada as well. However, I'm sad to report that just this week, there was a large lumber facility or flooring facility explosion in Quebec. Um, it's looking like this might have involved combustible dust. So it just happened at the time of recording this podcast episode. We'll know more by the time this episode gets released because we record them about a month in advance. Um, but it looks like there is at least three fatalities in this um, wood products uh, explosion as well out of Quebec. And, and that's as a good chance of if it is combustible dust, then it will certainly increase the uh, numbers that we see in Canada in terms of fatalities from these type of incidents. So that's it for this episode on lost history in North America. We talked about what lost history information is available and six resources for this. This NFPA report from 1957, a report on important dust explosions. The Chemical Safety Board investigation report published in 2006 and then the update published in 2018. The U.S. Bureau of Mines, and again, this information is not doesn't appear to be available in, in a consumable way in, in sort of a single report. So we haven't been able to analyze that in very much detail to date. The grain handling industry has several resources tracking from 1958 to today. There's the USDA task force report published in the late 70s. There's Kansas State University and Purdue University, which have both been tracking annually um, agricultural industry dust explosions. Then the six resources are combustible dust incident database since 2016, which is really attempting to track all of this information and bring it all together in a common platform. We identified some challenges through this type of tracking. The information is available through dozens of different documents and databases. There's overlaps and gaps in reporting. There's a very inconsistent approach across the board. And the information is generally only available, you know, 12 months to 12 years after the incidents occur. And this is just not rapid enough for industry to, to make changes, for governments and regulators to sort of make changes in a timely manner to address combustible challenges. This is one of the leading reasons for developing our incident database, but also this global incident reporting network that we're going to be working on over the next 12 months or so. We talked about lost history across the board. So I'll try to give one more summary of this, just if you want to sort of have the, the raw numbers. From 1900 to 1950, we were seeing 20 explosions, 31 injuries, and 12 fatalities per year on average. In grain handling industries in the 50s to 70s, we were seeing eight explosions, 15 injuries, and six fatalities per year. In the late 70s and early 80s, there was a large uptick in severity and number of grain elevator explosions. And then the OSHA grain handling standard got put in place. Since the 80s, we've been very steady at about 10 explosions per year, 11 injuries, and one to two fatalities in agricultural industries. In general industry, in that same sort of time period from the 1980s, we've been seeing 10 explosions a year, 25 injuries, and five fatalities. So if we combine these together, from the 1980s to today, we're seeing on average about 20 explosions per year that are tracked by Chemical Safety Board and, and others, 36 injuries and six to seven fatalities. And this compares pretty closely with the information in the day that we had from 1900 to 1950s, where they were seeing 20 explosions, 31 injuries a year, and 12 fatalities, with the biggest difference being the number of fatalities per year is reduced by half. So there's a couple ways to look at this. One, it's good that the fatalities are down. And this, again, is driven largely by the reduction in, in agricultural industry fatalities. 
There hasn't really been much change across general industries in terms of the number of fatalities per year. Since the number of industrial activity has increased over time, we'd expect the number of explosions and injuries maybe to increase, but we're seeing those sort of, say, levels. So that's you know a positive thing to look at. We're seeing 20 explosions a year, 30, 35 injuries. But on the other side, you know what? How are we? How are we actually doing? Have the things that we put in place really been reducing and making facilities safer? At the end of the day, when last week's episode, when I read through this early sugar dust and cocoa dust standard, it had the same recommendations that you'd find in a dust hazard analysis done at a sugar dust and cocoa facility today. Same recommendations that came out of the investigation of the Pure Sugar refinery explosion. So I'd say in a lot of cases, these are lessons unlearned, as Dr. Sam Manan from Texas A&M University would say, that we still have a lot of challenges. We're still fighting the same old battles that we had 100 years ago about the technological aspects of combustible dust, contain, collect, clean, prevent, protect, isolate, but also the human aspects as well, your management systems, safety culture, and those, those other aspects of the less tangible parts of combustible dust incidents. It is worthy to mention that our incident reporting, so since 2006 to today, tracks pretty closely with the historical data. Uh, we're seeing 30 explosions, 30 to 35 injuries, and two to three fatalities per year, and with the worst year being six fatalities in total. So we're seeing you know, information that's pretty close with the historical data. We're getting a couple more incidents a year being reported as our threshold for reporting is a little bit lower. And we haven't had a lot of large loss explosions since we've been recording 2016. Uh, but unfortunately, we do know that th- those years will happen. And when they do happen, they'll bring our numbers up higher for, for fatal explosions. A couple notes on what we're missing. Um, mining explosion data. There's not a great resource for this that I could find to determine um, combustible dust explosions. And we know this is a major contributor to loss in North America with incidents that involve you know, hundreds of fatalities. And certainly a large loss elsewhere in the world. And it, when we cover loss history in Asia, we'll get into this a little bit. But some of the coal mine explosions that occur are very, very, very tragic. I mean, they're all tragic. Um, even losing one life is tragic. And we had one that killed over 100 miners just about an hour from when we recording this podcast episode in 1992. There's others that have several hundred miners dying. So coal mine explosions is certainly a, a really important area that we're missing the lost history on. And that's really, you know, some of the main main points in lost history, some of the main challenges. So then if you want to get any of the resources, any links to this material, go to dustsafetyscience.com slash 152. I will try to pull all that out in the show notes or shoot me an email at chris at dustsafetyscience.com. If you're interested in this global reporting network that we'll, we will be developing over the next 12 months, um, either as a researcher or even we'll have, we're hoping to have leads for each individual country, Folks that speak the language of the country or read the language of the country would be very helpful to our efforts to understand the lost history there. You can email me, contact me, or go to dustsafetyshare.com. That's dustsafety, S-H-A-R-E. And there's a a form there you can fill out to sort of put your name, your hat, your name in the hat to join that um, global reporting network as we develop it out as well. So with that, I'll say thank you for listening to the Dust Safety Science Podcast. Hope you have a safe and productive week ahead. I really appreciate everything you're doing in industries handling combustible dust, making them safer every week, every day with the efforts that you're doing and the roles that you play. 